when we realize that the institutions of life fail us. Uh, the court system, which is supposed to ensure justice and, and protect us, lets criminals back out on the street. Uh, elected officials don't stand up for what's right. They do what's politically convenient. Or people with the public trust violate that trust, use their position of influence to, uh, to gain wealth or to, to, to help out their friends. A little closer to home, we sometime in life come to the realization that the institution of marriage and the family fails us. I can remember one time when I was a teenager uh, learning this lesson. When I was, uh, I was home with my brother alone, my parents were gone for the weekend. And a friend of mine came to the door and his nose was broken and it was bleeding. He and his father had gotten in a fight and his father had hit him with a chair. So I brought him in, took him to the guest room, told him he could spend the night there, went to bed, and sometime after midnight, the doorbell rang. I got up, came in, and there was his father at the front door, so I went and got him, said, when you guys finish talking, turn out the lights, lock the door, I'm going back to bed. In a few minutes, I hear this crashing and this scuffling, and I come in, and here are two deputy sheriffs in my guest room sitting on this guy, putting his handcuffs on, getting ready to drag him away. And when I, I protested... That about them coming into my house like that, they told me to shut up. They'd arrest me too. And that was, for me, a fairly startling lesson that things don't go exactly like we thought they were supposed to. A little more recently, I had a young lady, a, a teenager, in my office. She was crushed. She was really, really hurting, really desperate. She was looking for a place to stay. Her her. Uh, parents had just gotten divorced, or they'd been divorced actually for some time. Her mother had moved out of the area, and her father had raped her, and she couldn't go back there. And we all know of, of, of women whose husbands have betrayed them, men whose wives have been unfaithful. You know, the one person in life that is supposed to be there for us, and they let us down. There's one institution that's never supposed to let us down, and that's the church. But uh, we know better. I mean, how many pastors have we seen who've taken the money and run, or who have seduced a counselee? I was talking recently with a woman who was telling me in tears how an elder at her church had tried to seduce her. And when she went to talk to the pastor, he didn't believe her. He got angry at her, told her she was lying, and threw her out of his office. Later, when the elder confessed he still told her that somehow she had invited it. You know, it's not supposed to be this way. Institutions always disappoint us. They always let us down. And they don't always let us down in these big dramatic ways like, like I'm talking about. Often it's in the little ways. You know, you're going through some serious pain and the church doesn't even notice. Nobody calls. Nobody seems to care. Or maybe people will talk to you or, or act in a way that implies that your pain is your own fault. It's because you're not doing the right things. You don't have enough faith. You don't pray enough. You know, those of you who are married, sometimes when you're going through something that's really painful, your husband or, or your wife is so involved in dealing with their own pain, their own failures, that they can't be there for you. 
one of the most difficult but I think healthiest things that Becky and I have had to work through in our marriage and continue to work through is the fact is her realization that I as much as I am committed to her and to the marriage she cannot rely on me ultimately my sin gets in the way and my own weaknesses my own woundedness my own insecurities same thing is true with, with my children. As much as I want to be for them a father who affirms them and loves them, I let them down. Frequently, I don't treat them with the respect that they deserve and that they need. Even, even the best father in the world can't really give us what our, our, our hurting and insecure hearts really deeply long for. And, and even the best husband in the world, the best father ultimately, eventually disappoints us in the greatest way possible. They die. You know, it seems like there is no one, there's none that we can really count on. And that perception is not too far off. There is only one. Jesus Christ. And, and that's what our passage in Hebrews here is really about. Every institution fails us but one, Jesus Christ. He won't. Let's uh, pick up at about verse 11. That's where we are. Let me read just 11 through 19. We're going to go through the end of the chapter, but let me just start with this. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And it's clearer still, if another priest arises according to the um, likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of law of physical requirement, but, on, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weak, weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now the, 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 the writing of our, the, the language of Hebrews is difficult. I get lost every time I read it. Even though I've studied this passage, I get lost every time I read it. But fortunately, I've studied it enough to follow the argument. What our, our, our Jewish Hebrew writer, our author, is doing for us here is he's taking a brutally honest look at his own religion. This is a, a very courageous thing to do, something we ought to do more often. He looks at things as they are. He doesn't try to make excuses. He doesn't try to hedge. He comes straight at it and he says, my religion didn't cut it. It didn't make it. It didn't work. If it had worked, God never would have replaced it with something better. He says, but since we know that God established Jesus as high priest, he must have suspended the old law to do that. Now, his logic goes like this. We know that Jesus has been declared our high priest. But we also know that the law says that a high priest has to be a descendant of Levi, a, a, a descendant of Aaron. Well, Jesus was a descendant of David, a Judean. 
So in order for God to establish him as high priest, he had to overturn the old law. The word he uses there for overturned is, is, is to annul or to repeal. In order to make Jesus high priest, he had, God had to repeal the old system of law that gave that position only to Levites. So that's the point he's making. We've seen the same thing happen in our day in, in Eastern Europe. There, people decided they wanted a multi-party system. But the law gave a monopoly of, of power of control to the Communist Party. So in order to have more than one political party, they had to go back and repeal the laws which gave control to the communists. Well, in order to establish Jesus as our high priest, God had to repeal the system of law that established Levites as the only priests. Well, then having made it clear that the old law is repealed, our writer tells us how and why the new thing is better. Verse 18, I'll read again. 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. He says the old institution, the law, was weak and useless. It didn't bring anybody to maturity, to completion. It just kept people going in circles. It didn't bring them up to be mature. That's what the term complete or, or, or perfect means here. It's to mature, to complete. And the, the old law didn't do that. You see, the way things worked under the law was as long as you obeyed all of the law, you could enjoy coming close to God. It was simple. The deepest and greatest need and longing of mankind is to be with God, to know Him, to be His friend. And as long as you obey all the law, you can experience that. Well, the problem is obvious. Nobody could do that. Nobody obeyed all the law. People failed eventually. Everyone did. So they had the, 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 the system of priests and sacrifices to fix things if you failed. If, if you failed to keep all of the law, there was the sacrifice to clear things up with God so that you could then draw near to God again, enjoy that fellowship, as long as you didn't blow it again. But they blew it again. It just didn't work. You see, if every time you sinned, you had to go to the temple, I, for one, would live in the temple. And I'd quickly run out of things to sacrifice. I'd be going through my pockets thinking, there's nothing left here. You see... To, to have to respond to our, our, our sin with a sacrifice meant there was a time gap. Time to walk to the temple, to bring the sacrifice, to go through the ritual. You know, as soon as you got home and sinned again, you'd have to turn around and go back. That would be bad enough if you lived a couple blocks from the temple. But what if you lived a mile or five miles or ten miles or fifty miles? That's a long ways to walk. And it just didn't work. People didn't Go for it. They just gave up and played the game. They just gave up and pretended everything was okay. You see, the problem is that the law doesn't change you. It demands that you stop sinning, but it gives you no ability to do that. The law demands that you change, but it doesn't touch the, 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 the hurts and the insecurities, the, the fears and the confusion that's inside that caused you to sin in the first place. It makes demands for conformity without providing any transformation to go along with it, to make it possible. The way that Brian Fisher illustrated this point 
is this. Say somebody walked up to me, brought a copy of, of Hamlet or King Lear, dropped it on the desk next to me and says, I want you, in fact, I demand that you write something equally as brilliant. I couldn't do it. I could sit at my computer from now till the cows come home and then some. And I would never produce anything like that. I, I just couldn't do it. I would always fall short. Yet if the spirit of Shakespeare was able to come into my head and to start changing the way I think, start changing me to be more like him, I could then write like him. I could do it. Well, see, the same thing's true. The law demands that we not sin, that we be like God, perfect, like God is perfect. But it's only as the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, comes into us and begins to change the way we think, begins to change us on the inside, to comfort and our, our, our hurts and meet our needs, to change the way we are, to make us more like Him, that we can do it. You see, the good news is that God has replaced the demands of the law with the indestructible life of Jesus in us. And as that life lives out through us, it transforms us so that we become more and more like God. The difference is also illustrated in the, in the, in the difference he describes here between the Aaronic priest and Jesus. You see, back then, the only thing you had to do, you had to do two things to become a priest. First, you had to have the right parents. You had to be able to show that your lineage went back to Aaron. And they used to keep very detailed uh, genealogical records so they could establish that. And secondly, you had to be free from any external physical defect or, or, or disqualification. There's a list of 142 disqualifications. And they all deal with things on the outside, like how you cut your beard, not having a broken hand or a broken foot, not having eczema or psoriasis. Talk about the heartbreak of psoriasis. But see, everything focused on what was on the outside. Nothing focused on what was going on on the inside. It didn't matter what kind of man this was. It didn't matter how gifted he was to be a priest. It didn't matter uh, how good he was. He could be an absolute scoundrel, and many of them were. But as long as they had the right parents, the right body, and avoided doing a few external things that might defile them, like cutting their beard wrong, they were okay. They were accepted. They could become priests, and no one could keep them from becoming priests. Everything was focused on outward conformity, not on the inward qualities. The inward quality was irrelevant. So the institution that, that they spawned, they generated, was very shallow, very superficial, focused exclusively on conformity, and never really touched the heart, never really touched people deep inside. Well, our writer says Jesus became high priest not on externals, not on inheritance, but on his indestructible life. Who Jesus is, what he is like, are the relevant things about him. Not the outside, the inside. Doesn't matter how he cut his beard. Again, the priests of the old order were often corrupt and morally defiled. And as a result, they really could not bring anyone to God. Their services at the temple were unacceptable. Since they were corrupt, they could not gain access 
for anyone. And even on those, those occasions where you got a good priest, he didn't last very long. Eventually, fairly quickly, he died. Well, Jesus, again, is better. He brings the better hope. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Says Jesus became a high priest on the basis of an oath. Now, though the point is simply that Jesus will never be replaced. That Jesus, uh, that God has sworn that this better hope, which is Jesus Himself, will never be replaced. God does not need to swear; His word is good enough. But in order to leave absolutely no doubt in our minds about His intentions. He swore that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the ultimate. He's the priest that all the other priests were just foggy, dim pictures of, hints at. Jesus is the one that we can count on, the permanent one. In fact, it says he himself is the guarantee of the better covenant. Later on in chapter 8, we'll talk a lot about this new covenant. But for here, the point he is making is that as long as Jesus is alive, those who draw near to God through Him will always have access to the Father. No interruptions at all. And the good news is that Jesus is alive forever. Verse 23, he said, And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. There were 83 priests between Aaron and the time this book was written. There will never be another high priest. The 84th lasts forever. Verse 24, But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is constantly before the Father, not just on occasion, not just um, once a year, but he is always there at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for us, taking care of our sins perpetually. Not that we have to keep coming back it's just that he's always there doing that. And, 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 and it, it isn't that Jesus is, is nagging the Father, saying, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Now, just his presence there, sitting at the right hand of the Father, having done what he did, says it all. That's what, what uh, Paul says in Romans 8, the passage that we read in the responsive reading. He said, who will ever bring a charge against us? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also 
intercedes for us. He is always there. That's the bottom line. He is always there. So what the writer of Hebrews did for us, I think, is a very brave thing, a a very valuable thing. He took a hard, honest look at his own religion. And that's something that we need to do. We need to have the courage to look hard and long and honestly about our religion. We need to ask the same kind of questions. Does it really work? Does it really deal with the guilt that I feel? Does it really satisfy? Does it really touch me deeply? Or does it just require, demand that I conform without providing me any any power? You see, institutionalized religion usually takes one of two paths. Either it retreats into a formal focus on, on ritual, focusing purely on what happens on the outside, that you go through the right activities, that you be baptized, that you, that you come to church, that you receive the communion, that you do some, a lot of these things, mere formalities, mere things on the outside that don't touch us in the heart. Or, on the other hand, institutionalized religion takes another path, which is equally weak and useless. It plunges us violently into legalism, demanding that we stop sinning, telling us to try harder, reminding us of our guilt, but again, supplying no power to change, no power to be any different. Neither of these work. Both of these are weak and useless. The same conclusion that the writer of Hebrews came about about his religions. See, neither of these make us feel welcome in the presence of our Father. Neither of them touch us deeply on the inside. Neither of these really satisfy. So ask yourself, is the institution of religion failing you? Is it letting you down? Again, this is something we each, you and I, have to ask periodically and be honest with ourselves, come straight at it. Well, now let's take a look at the alternative, the better hope. That's Jesus himself in verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. When it says that Jesus was holy, the term here refers to his inner character. What God sees on the inside rather than what people see. That's the distinction in this word. What God sees in a person's life, not what other people see. See, we can put on a good show. I can get up here and give the impression that I have my act together. A few of you are shaking your heads who know me well enough that I don't do too good an acting job, but I can try. We put on a smile as we drive into the church parking lot. But what God sees is what's going on inside. The anger, the resentment, the pride, the selfishness. You know, most of us sit here in church wondering if the person next to us would get up and leave if they knew what we'd really been like this last week. Or what was really going on on the inside. We look around and say, look at all these together people. Boy, if they only knew about me. And every single one of us is sitting here doing that. Look at all these together people. 
if they only knew about me. But you see, Jesus is the only one who is exactly the same inside and out. What you see is really what's there. It says he is innocent. The term translated innocent means without any evil. He never hurt anyone. Our mothers hurt us. Our fathers hurt us. Our friends hurt us. Our teachers hurt us. Anybody who's known us well enough or who we have known well enough has hurt us. But Jesus never has. And he never will. In fact, he gave his life to help us. And he helps us still. Back in verse 24, when it says that he abides forever. The term used there is is the same term that's used of a servant who chooses to stay a servant. Even after he's been freed. Even after he's fulfilled his obligation. And he no longer has to stay a servant. He's free to go. He says, no, I want to stay here and serve you. And that's the term that they would use. You see, Jesus Christ has chosen freely to serve us. He doesn't have to, but He's chosen to. You know, that would be blasphemous if it wasn't true. The great Lord of the universe has chosen to be our servant. He served us with His life here on earth, and He continues to serve us, keeping the way open to the Father, keeping the door open to fellowship and enjoyment of Him, to being able to draw near to Him, to become God's friend. He continues to serve us. He can be counted on to never hurt, to never let us down. But it also says He is undefiled. You see, there's nothing in Him that makes Him at all uncomfortable in the presence of the Father. Any human intercessor is going to have their own issues to deal with. They're going to have their own obstacles between them and God. But not Jesus. He is perfectly at home, perfectly comfortable at the right hand of the Father. And so He can keep His attention on us, on our needs, on our lives, on our interests. He keeps us in focus. It says He has separated from sinners. Literally, he is different from sinners. He's different than the rest of us. Now, there was a lot of, of, of press given earlier in the book of Hebrews to showing how Jesus is the same as us. I mean, the, the, the writer went to great lengths to show that he feels the same things we feel. He's been through the same things we've been through. He's suffered the same temptations that we have suffered. And he is very much like his brothers in every respect. And that's true. He is very much like us. He knows us inside and out. But there is one substantial, important difference. He never sinned. He is without sin. And therefore, He can be trusted. You see, it's our sin that keeps us from being there for the people we love. It's the sin of the people who make up any institution, whether it's the church or the government or marriage or the family. It's the sin... That, 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 that means, that makes it so that that institution will eventually let us down. But Jesus is without sin. It's my own sin and, and the insecurity bred from my own sin and selfishness that keeps me from being there for the people I love, for, for, for my family, for my friends, for this church. Again, Jesus is totally different. 
He has no sin and therefore can be counted on to be there for us. And finally, he says, he is exalted above the heavens. He's the great. He is the ultimate. There is nothing that he, uh, no, nothing he cannot see, no place he cannot go. As I've told you before, my wife Becky works with, with cancer patients, some of whom are dying. And she, she works very hard to, to really take care of those who are in her care, seeking to meet their physical and emotional needs. But there is one thing she cannot do for any of them. And she tells them this. She cannot be there for them in their death. Their families, no matter how loving and supportive, no how much they want to be, cannot go through that with them. Their friends can't. Their, their, their minister, their priest can't. There's only one who can. When that final moment comes, there is only one who can be there with us, for us. And that is Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. Only he can go through that with us. He's there and he's always there. We can count on Him to be there. And there are no interruptions in what He provides. If you remember, one of the, the problems with the, with the old system, with the law, so He had to keep coming back. Had to keep coming back for a new sacrifice. And it just was impractical. It didn't work. People got tired of it. They said, this is stupid. It's not working. And so they, 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 they became cynical. They just went through the motions. They played the religion game. Pretended everything was okay and went on with real life, important life, making money, raising a family, getting on with real things. Well, the same remains true of religion today. That it doesn't work so often. And we become tired of it. We get tired of going through the motions every week. We get tired of feeling guilty over and over again. And so we get fed up. We, 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 we become cynical ourselves. And we retreat into just playing the religion game. Saying everything's okay. And we get on with real life. But it's a life that never has its deepest longings met. A life of disappointment. Just covered with a, a thin religious veneer. You know, or some, some people may be strong enough to stand up and say, I'll take care of it myself. I will deal with my guilt. I will atone for my sins. I'll make it up to God. And we live preoccupied, fruitless lives that can never move beyond our preoccupation with ourselves. Well, that's not the design that God has. That's not the good news, what God has replaced the old system with. Listen to verse 27. Jesus does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. You see, we don't need to keep going back for more sacrifices. We don't need to try to take care of it ourselves. Jesus took care of it once and for all. It is done. It is finished. Now, because of what He did, offering Himself, we can come into the presence of the Father at any time without any interruption.
and resurrection has torn the curtain in the Holy of Holies. He has blown the door off the throne room. And we can go in any time. We are welcome in. And when we get in there, what we find is someone who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Someone who says, I branded you onto the palms of my hands so that I won't forget you. Someone who said, if anyone comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. He will never reject us. He will never hurt us. He will never be indifferent to our pain, to our needs. He will never die. He will always be there. A while back, Becky and I had uh, were called notified about an opportunity to adopt a baby. First, we were a little bit hesitant because we felt kind of guilty. We have two children, and we knew how many people were waiting for their first. And so we were, were a little bit uh, reserved. But as we prayed it through and thought about it, and as we realized just how much each child adds to the family, we begin to, to become excited about it. We thought, this is something good. Well, the child was going to be born in, in very, sh- very shortly, just a, a couple months And we became more and more excited about adding this child to our family. Well, shortly before the child was born, the mother had second thoughts and decided that she wanted to keep her child. But to us, it felt like we lost our baby. That was a a confusing time for us. Becky immediately started the process of grieving. But I couldn't do that. For some reason, I don't know why, but I just couldn't do that. I tried to pass it off and say, okay, everything's fine. This was God's will. We wanted God's will, so no problem. But as a result, I couldn't be there at all for Becky. See, I wasn't dealing with my own pain, and so I didn't want to see hers. Hers annoyed me. That was one of the times when when Becky discovered the sufficiency of her Lord. I wasn't willing to identify with her pain, but he was. He did. But see, she couldn't be there for me either. Not because she was unwilling, not because she didn't want to, but because the things that were happening with me were happening way down inside, and I didn't understand them. I couldn't articulate them. I didn't know what was going on. So as hard as she tried, she was unable to get inside to help because I was confused and withdrawn. There was only one who could help. Only one who could be in there with me and feel what I was feeling, even though I couldn't describe those feelings. There was only one who could go through that with me, that could get inside me. And that was Jesus. And eventually, I I broke. It took a long time. It took a couple months of getting real uptight, real unhappy. But eventually, I broke and, and wept in his arms. Felt his comfort. Felt his love. And as a result, was then able to open up and let Becky in. And together, we could start discovering what it was that I was feeling, what I was going through. You see, friends and family, brothers and sisters in Christ, are extremely valuable. They are good. We should never take them for granted. They can really help us as we work through things. But ultimately, they can't feel what we feel. They can't really know what it's like, as hard as they may try. Ultimately, they will let us down. Maybe because they're selfish. We all are. Maybe just because they're weak. They're not adequate. They just can't do it. 
no matter how good your mother is, no matter how good your friend is, no matter how good your counselor is, no matter how good your husband or your wife is, they are only human. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect, complete, forever. He is always there. Now let's pray. Lord, we do praise you that you are always there for us. Lord, you love us. You never abandon us. You never hurt us. There's nothing keeping us away because you have taken care of our sins. We don't need to to try to do it ourselves. Lord, we just worship you for being there for us. Just thank you that you chose to do that freely, even though you didn't have to. That we can count on you absolutely. Thank you for family. Thank you for friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. But Lord, again, we know that you are the only one ultimately we can count on, and we worship you for it. We pray in your name. Amen.